0: The following resources presented by the Counseling and Conference Services of IOM America. Welcome to a counselor's point of view. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your host. Okay, we welcome our online listeners uh, to our podcast today. We are still under the social area of life. And there's a section underneath the social area of life called fruit. And today we're going to be talking about the true meaning and purpose of indwelt friendships. This is part one of part two. So so today, the social area of life, fruit of the spirit with true indwelt friendships. So let's take a look at our first slide here. We have... True friends, an exchange of identity, is a great personal blessing. It really is. There's nothing sweeter than talking to someone who has the very life of Christ inside them, and you befriend them, and they befriend you. You give your identity to them, and they give their identity to you. And that oneness of mind, oneness of spirit, oneness of life, can accomplish a great deal. So let's face it, when you add up all of your relationships on earth, most people can actually count true, intimate uh, friends on one hand. So what's the greatest test of a friend, according to the, the book of Proverbs? I mean, I can say I'm your friend, you can say you're my friend, but w- that, that's all fine and dandy in the head. But what's the truest test of a friend? is that true friendship is actually thicker than blood. But a true friend will lay his life down for another. So the the greatest test of this kind of friendship is will this person sacrifice their life? And I think we know someone who did that. Who had to suffer the complete isolation and loneliness of the very disciples that he picked to support his mission had to be deserted, put in this complete moment of isolation. And they had to see the proof with their own eyes before they would actually believe and re-engage as disciples. And with that betrayal and no proof of friendship that they had with Christ, he had to love and bear through that until they got it. You see, Christ understood that true friendship is an exchange of identity. Christ understood that out of 12 disciples, one was going to be possessed by the devil, Judas. And then there were 11. Jesus knew that one out of the the 11 was going to be considered heart of my heart, identity of my identity. That's the beloved John. Now we're down to ten. Jesus knew they couldn't get it until they got him. Until he ascended, the Holy Spirit descended, and in that upper room, that, that, that moment of Pentecost, when they received the Holy Spirit, that's when Jesus could expect true friendship from the disciples. And that is when he got it. You can't be a friend with someone who's going to hell. Now I'm going to say that again, and and I want our listeners to listen very careful. You can't be a friend with someone who's going to hell. Christ was never a friend with someone who was going to hell. Christ was only a friend with people who received His Holy Spirit. He did befriend people or associate people with people until the great exchange took place but you can't use friendship like it's some kind of meal that you serve on a special occasion you can't because there is no value in doing that some of the most painful experiences certainly of my life comes to me or to us through broken friendships or having those that we love, turn on us at the first sign of disillusionment. Oswald Chambers, in one of his, although it was his wife that put his sermons into daily devotionals, but one of them is entitled, The Disillusionment of Discipleship. Does anyone remember what that one is about?
1: So why they put their faith and trust in the person instead of Christ and then the whole thing?
0: Yeah. So disillusionment of discipleship is actually pedestal thinking or believing or worshiping where you put the person up on a pedestal and of course, as Janie and I have said to you guys many, many times, the very people, at least our experience has been, the very people that put you on a pedestal are the very people who kick the pedestal out from underneath you because they become disillusioned. They're expecting things out of you that they don't even expect out of Christ And that's why it's idolatry. If they expected it out of Christ, and Christ was in them, they wouldn't have this thing of depending on people as being their God. They would understand it is Christ and Christ alone who lives inside me. But friendships are often strained because God's principles regarding true friendship are ignored or simply violated. Now let's talk about uh, speaking to a friend. This is out of Exodus 33, verse 11. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from his tent. Now this is a real critical piece to understanding that Moses himself did not understand the answer to his own prayer. was actually in front of him, in his tent, and he wouldn't move. God spoke to Moses not only face to face, but as a man speaks to a dear friend. Now he is faced with the ultimate evidence of friendship, who will help uh, the leader carry the Lord's plan into the next generation. This was Moses' primary concern. Moses knew that this friend would need to be someone who not only was loyal to him, but was blessed with the same vision and purpose. Someone who he trusted in the exchange of, of identity. So whatever Moses' identity was, needed to be this person's identity. Whatever this person's identity was, needed to be Moses' identity. And he's having this this wrestling match, so to speak, with God, who is his friend. And yet, Joshua is in this tent, and he won't leave. But see, Moses won't he, he's not making the connection that the answer to his own prayer is right in front of him. With that, Moses questions the Lord with this matter. See, you say to me, bring up the people, but you yourself have not let me know whom I will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Okay, that's Exodus 33 12. Someone please read out loud, now nice and loud again. Exodus 33, verse 11.
1: Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of
0: Okay, now when I read this, this verse, I, see, I am reading some real significant things here. Thus the Lord would speak to Moses. Face to face. And just as a man speaks to his friend. That's another significant piece. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant, Who? Who in the world was this kid? Was he as old and wise as Moses? He was one of two out of the generation that was supposedly, well, in fact, all the grandparents and parental generations, those two generations, what had to happen to them? The carcass had to lay dead in the wilderness. And it was the children and grandchildren of those two generations. So you had four generations going, which is where Moses and others get the whole thing about, about the four generations and how significant those four generations are. And so we have Joshua and Caleb come being cut out of that cloth and pulled out and being given a very special privilege. And here Moses himself is having this little wrestling match, so to speak, with God, and Joshua won't leave his side. Do you understand that? Joshua won't leave Moses' side. If Moses was up with the presence of God, Joshua let him alone, and Scripture reinforces again that Joshua always sat at the base of the mountain waiting for Moses. What kind of loyalty is that? And then when Moses would come down, he would join him, go into his tent, stay at his side. Moses is wrestling away with, come on, Lord, you said that that we were to raise the people up and we're to do, you know, all this great, mighty work of yours, but where's the person you will give me to send? Now, if I was God, God forbid, I'd say, Moses, wake up! He's standing in your tent. But that's not what God did. So let's break this down a little bit. You would think that Moses would be able to look in front of him and see the answer. Joshua being in his tent, refusing to leave Moses' side as he wrestled with this question. Many times we are blinded by our own struggles, which blocks us from obvious solutions. Right there in the midst of Moses... Was his closest friend, his servant Joshua. But Moses' struggle was much deeper. He wanted to make sure he had the favor of his greatest friend, and that was the Lord Himself. He becomes so bold that he asks the Lord to show Himself. Now, obviously, Moses isn't really connecting the dots. So he he goes a step further. We're still in Exodus 33. Now we're at 17 through 23. Someone read nice and loud this passage.
1: And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by and i will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until i have passed by then i will take my hand away and you shall see my back but my face shall
0: not be seen so what's going on here we got a point well taken that god speaks to moses face to face we have a point well taken that that god is very compassionate Gives him his servant Joshua. Joshua stays at his side no matter what. And Moses continues this wrestling with the Lord. And now he's basically saying, You say that you speak to me face to face. That's the first verse we read. But he doesn't really. So here we have this issue in Moses' mind of clarity he wants to see God nobody as scripture tells us gets to see the face of God before Jesus comes gives his life and does the 40 day walk ascends into heaven and gets to see the face of God he's the first one that gets to see the face of God okay Then we are opened up. That veil is ripped and pulled back so we too can see our friend face to face. That's what's going on here. There is powerful messages within this one passage from the one I just shared with you with Jesus Christ to what this desire that Moses has in truly wanting to see The identity, the namesake of God the Father. To know your name is to say, I know your identity. That's Old Testament. New Testament, to know your blood is to know your identity. For there's identity in the blood. For there's life in the blood. For Jesus' blood is what redeems us and gives us a new identity. So in this passage, God is actually compassionate and he's basically saying, okay, I'm going to let you see my backside. But as I'm walking by, my hand will cover your eyes and when I'm past you, I'll take my hand away so you can see my backside. And God's basically saying to Moses, that's enough for you. And here's the reality of where this passage takes us. Joshua was going to be following the backside of Moses even though Moses was dead. Moses was to be following the backside of God even though he could not see the face of God. People who are of trivial friendships demand to see the person face to face. They can't just follow them blindly. They have to test, try, turn the person around and try them. And that's a bit what Moses is doing here. He is trying God's patience a little bit, but God's patience is everlasting. So God just goes, okay, here's, here's what I will do for you. It's a beautiful passage of compassion and grace. Here's the action birthed in true friendship. Moses learned quickly that no man can see the face of God before Christ himself, was delivered to the earth, and returned to God. So what does God do? He hears the voice of his servant, his friend, and grants Moses the privilege of letting Moses see his backside. Why is all this so important? Because God desires to put action where his friendship is. Since the Hebrew friendship means the exchange of identity, Moses wanted to see with his own eyes what he was gaining in the exchange. And I think that's very normal. I think that's very natural. And I think that's very neutral. Another case important was Abraham, who is called the friend of God. Simple fact of God choosing him due to his full commitment to God in faith. So we see in Isaiah 41, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, of whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend. To be called a friend by God is the most significant title that you can receive from God. Because it is the same thing in Hebrew saying that this way, descendant of Abraham, my identity. Abraham, the father of all nations, is as God, the father of all creation. He's reducing it down to Abraham, whom I am well pleased. Abraham, who has my identity? Abraham, who is my representative? And that's what Abraham was. Abraham was the representative of the identity of God, his namesake. Jacob is to be the identity and representative of Abraham and descendant after descendant after descendant and that's how the namesake of God through man becomes relevant today friendship evidence who commitment so here we have first point is friendship is evidence who commitment commitment is proven through fiery furnace of life such was the case with Abraham when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God considering whether or not to tell Abraham his plans. God does decide to do so on the basis of Abraham's steadfast commitment to God in his ways. So I seriously want to ask you guys, what's the point of God wrestling this. God's going, hmm, should I decide to tell Abraham? What's the point? He's God. And secondly, what did God need to be assured from Abraham before he could tell him anything? Unwavering commitment. commitment. So here's the proof of purchase. Any leader who is listening right now, I really want you to listen very carefully because this is one of the golden keys that you need to hold in your hand. Never, ever commit your internal knowledge of the Holy One and commands that God has given you directly for your ministry. Do not entrust them to flaky followers. You see, God himself is wanting to make sure that Abraham was committed, truly committed, and unwavering in his commitment, then God would engage Abraham with what was going on inside of his mind. It's like handing someone a bag of money that you kind of trust, but kind of don't trust, and they never come back. The greatest investment for God is in knowledge of the holy. So the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. And in him all the nations on the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. The principle of Abraham being committed to pass down what God gives to him in his mind, that he will pass it down from generation to generation. Since it would be wise of us to base friendship on the terms and conditions of those of God, we can embrace this. A friend first is one who is committed to you and expresses the commitment and steadfast loyalty under all conditions. Just as God needs the assurance that His friends will not bail on Him when the fiery trials begin to come, we must have the same level of assurance when it comes to those we call friends. My counsel, for whatever that's worth, Never invest your life and mission of God in a man or woman who has not been proven with such commitment. And since there are a rare, rare, rare few people in the world today who you can entrust the gospel with, we're going to see fewer lives touched the closer we get to the end times. That's the facts. The simple facts are a friend loves at all times, especially in times of adversity, who show their loyalty during such times. Of course, Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Meaning, your actual sibling. There's more adversity in that than there shall be in a true friend. Jesus himself realized that. The adversity that he had between his four brothers and himself was probably so enormous. But we do know this, that none of them supported him, his entire ministry. And it was only James who decided to support his brother after he saw the proof that he did get crucified, he did get put in the tomb, he did come out of the tomb, and he started walking the earth for 40 days. Then he decided, okay, maybe my brother was telling the truth. But the rest, we still don't know what their destination was. So here's an interesting question I asked the Lord in my office this week. As these concepts from the Lord are being poured from my mind to my fingers, I had to ask this question. Is Jesus' brothers in hell? I'll leave that with you. Next point, a true friend birthed through God really does stick closer than a brother. Family members are rarely the chosen friends of God. Not to say that this can't happen, but truth being said, siblings and or family members are known to bail on God's vision bearers due to the sin of competition and comparison plus they tend to look at the messenger through the weaknesses of their childhood i have a brother like this you might have a brother like this or a sister like this this whole thing that happens in between siblings is oftentimes Associated with the sin of comparison. One sibling wants one thing and they want it. One sibling is better at something else than they're competing. Some parents are so ignorant that they set their children up to compete with each other. Do better. Do better than your brother. Do better than your sister. Do better. And you're literally setting those children up to compete with Jesus Christ. The sin of competition is what destroys true indwelt friendships. I want to ask all of you out there that are listening that have used competition like it's some kind of gambling slot machine to raise your children, or maybe you're a leader in a given country and you're competing. With this person that you have on a pedestal, what God cares about is an embrace of true indwelled friendships, identity. He came, this is Jesus, he came into his hometown. This is Matthew 13 54 through 56. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom? and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers called James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now these are the people from his own community and they are seeing Jesus raised and they're seeing the flaws of his four brothers and whoever his sisters were and they're doing the sin of comparison. And it literally blocked them from receiving the truth that could set them free. So let's take a look at that. Jesus said it quite clearly, Matthew thirteen fifty-seven, and they took offense at him. This wasn't just, oh, is this Jesus? Isn't he related to? They're not making some family tree connection here. They were offended by the power of his words because they were related to these people. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And those are the two things that these people were having to deal with. Jesus is in our hometown, which is his hometown, and Jesus is from this weak family. Now since there are history books that actually note Some of the stuff, the dynamics that went on between Jesus' brothers and him. Certainly, these people who were doing the sin of comparison were aware of some of these wars and rumors of wars. I don't think Jesus got along with his brothers. I don't know this to be true, but i got a feeling I'm going to find out that it was true. Jesus chose not to conduct ministry. In his hometown or his household due to their unbelief. You see, the sin of comparison literally puts the prophet in the position of saying, I'm not doing ministry in my hometown. Keep in mind that James, in the book of James, an unbeliever prior to Jesus' resurrection, is the only brother that fully embraced Jesus' teachings and faithfully followed his brother, Jesus. And this wasn't until the brother actually got to see with his own eyes. Jesus, my brother, was telling the truth. Mary seemed to be the only family member that believed and faithfully stayed with him throughout his earthly ministry. Of course, Mary was literally visited by an angel And she was there from before conception all the way through the crucifixion. So she had physical, psychological, and spiritual verification given to her throughout his entire life. And God knew that was necessary for her to be faithful until the very end. But outside of Mary, there is no evidence anywhere of the support, not even his own earthly father. I believe he probably did support, but there's nothing ever said about it. The question the locals asked, where then did this man get uh, these things, is actually the best question that needs to be asked And if they could have gotten beyond looking upon Jesus as some local brother of these guys, they could have discovered the truth that could have set them free and why Jesus came to that town to preach the gospel. They could have got it. But because of the sin of comparison and competition, they set Jesus up to make the decision that he was not going to minister before them true friends do not compare nor look upon the prophet as human but rather how god uses the prophet to proclaim the message of the living god this kind of disbelief blocks god from using the prophet to reveal his miracles and truth matthew 13:58 And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So where did Jesus find his faithful friend that he was able to entrust his ministry as well the care of his mother? Pay attention carefully. None other than his beloved friend, John, son of Zebedee, a former fisherman who became the beloved of Jesus and authored the Gospel of John, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and the most important book in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation. So the same thing that was going on with Moses, with Joshua, is what we are seeing experienced with John. It wasn't one of Moses' friends. It wasn't one of Moses' children. For some reason, we have expectations that our children are going to carry on the mission and vision and purpose of what God gave the Father. How did the son of one of the most stable church associations, Calvary Chapel, how'd that story turn out? He became emergent. His own father stood up in the last association meeting before he died and said, I'm disbanding the association. How did the son of Billy Graham turn out? He made one of the most emergent statements that we have heard yet. And when the whole thing of the presidential campaign happened and they had on their website, which his father had put on there, and they had on their website a list of cults. Mormonism was one of them and a statement that do not support this, this church, do not get involved with it, blah, blah, blah. And then when the whole thing came around where he had to make a decision on which antichrist he was going to vote for, he decided to vote for the Mormon candidate. And he pulled that off of the website, all of the other cult things off of the website, and made a public statement on their website, saw with my own eyes, and in the press, that the Billy Graham crusade will never make any statements of such separation again. How does that happen? And the list just keeps growing. You would think that the sons of these leaders would get it, but they don't. Because it's the prophet in their hometown and the prophet in their household. It's in a comparison. Oh, I know what that person's real weaknesses are. Well, I'm not listening to Jesus in them. One of Jesus' brothers were a part of the 12 disciples And this happened after, as I just explained. And even in the end, when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples deserted him, fled, except for one, Jesus' beloved friend, the disciple John, son of Zebedee. He was the one that that stayed engaged, wouldn't leave the tent. Joshua wouldn't leave the tent. Here's our identity matter statement for today. Jesus said that whoever wants to follow him, that person needs to deny himself, deny his identity, deny his flesh, take up his cross, his identity in Christ, and then follow him. He said that if you, one wants to save or preserve his identity, his life, will lose it. I want to say that again. The one who wants to save their own reputation save their own identity, is going to end up losing it. They're bringing conflict upon themselves. But if he loses his identity for Jesus, and for the mission of the gospel, he will actually save or exchange it. But if you fight it to try to preserve it, you're going to lose it. Even though the remaining eleven disciples, who claimed they were friends of Jesus, I think if we would have walked up to any of the disciples, the moment Jesus got arrested and hauled off, they're still there in the garden. By the way, what were they doing? Sleeping. They weren't engaged in caring for their savior. It's that persecution of the pillow. Again. Persecution of the pillow. So that he's he's being hauled off. So if we would walk up to those disciples and say, "Are you friends with Jesus?" The odds are that most of them would say, "Yeah." Now Peter denied Christ three times. He bolted. But I think now we're down to nine. And if we would ask those nine, are you friends? Would you call yourself friends of Jesus? I think they probably would have said yes. Those disciples who claimed were friends of Jesus and made uh, repetitive claims of loyalty to Him, their commitment level was tested and they failed in their proclamations of friendship. They should have been willing to give their lives for Jesus. Not to worry, though, Jesus knew in due time that the ten of the eleven, Judas exempt, would return once they discovered the true meaning of friendship. When you understand the true meaning of friendship, the believer is then able to observe the mission and purpose of true friendship, which is an exchange of identity in order to pass down your most valued relationships and ministry. Ministry and mission cannot be carried on until friendship is tried and tested by the fire of adversity. I am of the same mindset of Jesus. Hopefully. I'm not giving my wife, my daughter, my other relationships, my heritage, my inheritance, whatever that's worth. I'm worth a little bit, but as most of us were worth more dead than alive but i am not giving it to any family member because they're family it's not going to happen i'm going to give it to someone like moses to joshua like jesus to john do you do you understand the impact think about hebrew tradition think about Mary and Joseph and Joseph dying and the four brothers and Jesus being the eldest brother and he picks someone outside the family to care for mom? Is that, is that not, not jar your mind a little bit? Do you know how offended those brothers must have been? If you've never thought this through, you need to take some time this week and think this through. Those brothers had to be horrifically offended. If the own townsmen were offended by Jesus, you've got to understand that Jesus picking this John character outside of the family to care for his mother, what authority does this man think he has? He has the authority of the living God given to him as the eldest son. He had nothing to say about it. And here he is given the care of his mother. Here he given the care of his ministry. Here he is given the care of eternal life lived out on earth to this beloved John. Fathers, I want you to listen carefully, no matter what country you're in. Do not give your valuables to your children unless they've been tested by the truest test of friendship, and that is a proper identity exchange with Christ Jesus, and they're faithful and loyal to the very end to carry on the message that God has given you as a father to carry on. Our lives are for the strict purpose of building up a ministry and developing that ministry to Christ's capacity, whatever your measurement of faith is, to turn around and not die and have that die with you, but to turn around and hand it down to the next generation. What's your life for? I mean, what was it all for? Seriously, just so you could die and say... I think I made a little bit of a difference. No, it's so you can hand down an entire mission and purpose of God. That's why I weep when I study the passage of Moses and Joshua. That's why I weep as I study the passage of Jesus and his beloved John. That's why I weep when I I look at how much John was used after his death. One of the primary Gospels, and then 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, book of Revelation. Who was another guy that was used by God who ate up a huge portion of the New Testament? Paul, an arrogant young man who hated Christ and slaughtered Christians for a hobby. You see, but he was devoted, he understood commitment, he understood, you know, preaching, you know, with all passion of what you believe, he he understood all that. Why didn't someone from Jesus' lineage get picked? Those are very important questions to me because true relationships, we're going to pick up here again next week, but true relationships have to be from the indwelling life of Christ or you're going to end up struggling with fleshly things that your friends are struggling with. And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the emergent phrase of love your brother, love them, accept them, be with them, don't judge them and whatever. And next week I'm going to be showing you a passage that shows us we are supposed to be judging people in the church. The scripture that we're going to cover talks about For those outside the church, God judges. You see, we have used this grace term like it's some heal-all band-aid or or salve to bring healing to people who are going to hell in a handbasket. Do not be friends with anyone unless they have the indwelling life of Christ. Befriend them. But it's this way. It's to get close to them so that you can give to them, you're not to get back from them. Do you understand that? You are to get close to them to give to them. And if someone is saying, Boy, you don't give me much, you don't trust me with your whatever, no, I don't. There's nothing wrong with you saying it. No, I don't trust you with the gospel, I don't trust you with my life. I don't trust you with my family. I don't trust you with... Of course I don't. There's no proof of commitment. We're going to move now into question and answering time, but I'm learning more and more each week that our online listeners need to have a little questioning and answering time. So all I'm asking you to do is when that guy comes on at the end of the podcast, he gives you a web address I want you to go to that web address. Or you can text me on my cell phone number, and that's 602-292-2982. Text me and I will answer. Call me and I will try to answer. Because you too may have questions. You too may be asking for answers that are in and through Christ Jesus.